box to box stoppage time. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Hello and welcome to Box to Box Stoppage Time. You're with Rob Gilbert, Derek Dyson and Willem van Denderen for our podcast where we go through our highlights of the past week, our teams, our moments and plenty more. Derek, uh, as always, mate, we've got a, a big show lined up. Um, I know I've got a couple of topics that I like to, to launch into, mate, but um, why don't you steer us out of the dock? Well, Rob, we often say that there's lots to choose from for this segment, but as we draw to the end of the season we don't really have lots to choose from <laughs> there's only a few games of sort of major football in major leagues going around and i feel like that might go down a bit further before we get to the women's world cup of course but um i zeroed in on the uh, europa league final and mostly mostly to do with what happened off the pitch rather than on it on the pitch seville just proved that they are this european elite europa league team having drew the game one all and then uh, won 4-1 on penalties, um, seven wins out of seven finals, just incredible stuff. And that ended Jose Mourinho's run of winning every European final that he's played in, which I'm pretty sure he must have um, value, valued that um, that acc- accolade. Uh, it was Roma that took the lead. Paolo Dybala scored a nice goal, having been set clear but poor old Gianluca Mancini I don't know if there's a connection to Roberto Mancini there probably is um but he got an own goal that put Seville level and it was Mancini one of the penalty takers who missed for Roma that um that ultimately saw Gonzalo Montiel uh, who of course won uh, the World Cup with his penalty for Argentina uh, stepping up on the second occasion, because he missed the first one or it was saved, he was asked to retake it by the um, Anthony Taylor, I think, was the uh, the referee. Um, and he made no mistake second time around, delirium for um, Seville. Um, in what was, you know, quite a drab game, it was hardly the game of the week. In terms of uh, the quality of the football, it was pretty negative and cynical stuff, particularly from Roma, uh, particularly as it, rolled closer to closer to to um, penalties. But most of the drama happening off the pitch because, of course, Jose Mourinho and his back um, backroom staff going absolutely nuts on the sideline. Um, I felt uh, sorry for the other English referee, whose name escapes me, who had to kind of stand in the middle there as the fourth official trying to um, keep things calm. Uh, Mourinho was, of course, booked for... Uh, insulting and, and abusive behavior and he's now uh, going to have disciplinary proceedings against him uh he called anthony taylor a disgrace in the stadium car park having thrown him under the bus during the press conference where he said he was a spanish referee both teams in fact have been charged with improper conduct because of a 13 players booked during the game seven of them are roma six from uh, Seville. So let's just not make it all a beat up on Roma. Seville played their part uh, in the game. And of course, Anthony Taylor was verbally abused along with his family at Budapest Airport by Roma fans um, on the way back. And, uh, you know, you, you just have to think that because of Mourinho's antics on the sideline in the uh, in the car park, 
So that is only egging on the Roma fans to identify Anthony Taylor and to um, and to abuse him. And for all that we um, laugh at Jose and it's all a little bit tongue-in-cheek, uh, I think this is pretty serious. Uh, it's not a good look for the game. If everyone was like this, can you just imagine what the games and the state of the game would be? So quite frankly, I'm pleased that Seville won. Uh, great for Luis uh, Mendilibar, only three months in the job rescue mission for him because um, they were threatened with relegation, journeyman manager, and now he's got a Europa League winner's medal. And, of course, Jose Mourinho doesn't have a Europa League loser's medal because he threw it into the crowd. So that's my game, uh, Rob, and I know that you uh, you had some, some thoughts on it as well. I, um, I, I do. Um, the the uh, I guess the question that I wanted to ask, um, you know, I agree entirely with uh, with your thoughts on uh, Mourinho and him egging on the fans not that Roma fans uh, um, as their you know track record would would suggest need much egging on um, but Mourinho you know he, he just never seems to know when enough's enough and to, to graciously accept the fact that someone's got to win someone's got to lose two two questions to you on this um was this game as good an example of any as any there is of, of the pointlessness of extra time in a match like this because neither team seemed to play to win? And given that we did have extra time, have you ever heard any logical, sensible explanation as to why one team won't take on the opportunity to win it when the game is is still alive and they're prepared to take on the 50-50 uh, chance of a penalty shootout. Yeah, look, I, I tend to agree with you, Rob. I mean, I'm not a big fan of extra time. It sort of lengthens the game, lengthens the viewing experience. It was pretty dire by all accounts if you were watching this game, watching this game live. And as you said, like extra time rarely produces drama. I mean, not just this game, but any game, and particularly in European football, where it's the ultimate, you could say, cynicism or pragmatism, and, and people are prepared to go for penalties because they feel like the destiny is in their own hands and not to go for it in extra time. I also think it would have a, um, a an impact on the end of these games as well, because I think if people knew we were going straight to penalties, it might actually have an impact on whether a manager throws on some cautions to the wind at the end rather than having to go through um, go, go through extra time and maybe they nick a goal from a corner or something, but certainly saw the ugly side of the game. My game of the week and my hot topic uh, have uh, uh, well come from the same game and, I, and uh, my game of the week, as it turns out, is the grand final. We talked to Ray Gatt in the main show earlier on in the week and, uh, and one of my favourite writers on the domestic game in this country is, uh, of course, uh, Joey Lynch, a regular on our show. Uh, he writes for The Guardian, for ESPN, for the ABC um, and uh, and his description of the game for me was um, was just a perfect encapsulation of what we saw on the night. Uh, he wrote, it was a, a wondrous night, an incredible night, something that was never expected and surely will never be repeated. A 6-1 victory to the Central Coast Mariners in the 2023 A-League Men's Grand Final. And he wrote, the moment it turned was when Sammy Silvera looked and received the ball from Jason Cummings in the 34th minute. His side were one up at the time and it was almost as if the world was slowing down for him as he fired past 
past Tom Glover in the city goal. The lead secured, the nerve settled. The Mariners began to rise like a tide, lifted by the wave of yellow and blue clad supporters. Just beautifully written there, Joe. Well done. And, uh, you know, I mean, city coach Rado Vitisic, he was, he was honest afterwards. He said they were outplayed in the first half. They bullied us. They won every 50-50 ball. Even the smallest players were unbelievably committed. We just maybe thought someone else was going to do it for me, and it didn't happen. And it did look like that, Willem, as you're watching that grand final. It, it looked like um, every player was uh, was thinking that someone else was going to do do it for them. And uh, and even though they you know they um, had that two one lead, and we did discuss in the main show earlier on in the week that uh, that City looked like they were in the game. Um, that was not what the Mariners thought. They just came out and menaced um, City in the second half and. Um, it uh, it was uh, a, a night for the ages. Yeah, it most certainly was. And as I said on the main show, I think the scoreline probably didn't really reflect the match, even though it was it was pretty brutal as they rattled in in the second half. I'm glad that, that Joey wrote about and that you brought up the Silvera goal there, Rob, because that blew me away. Like, I've watched the A-leg my whole life, but that was phenomenal. Put that on any pitch in the world. He was going that quickly um, and a you know, take those touches at that pace, slot it. Uh, and then his, uh, his assist later on, Benny Uncololo, uh, his assist for Uncololo in the 83rd minute. Um, there's, there's stars around this Mariners team, and I still see Silvera as a little bit peripheral, but Edge spoke to Montgomery about it uh, on the show last week, and he said this boy, you know, is as good as any of them. Of them. Uh, it's all there for him if he wants it. Uh, so now he can be very proud of his efforts on, uh, on grand final day. That, that second goal in particular was the highlight of, uh, of the match for me, Rob. Yeah, absolutely it was. And uh, and look, I, I do feel for Melbourne City, we've discussed it many times, anyone who's commentated uh, or commented on, on the game, whether they're a, a pundit uh, in the media or, or a fan, uh, unless you absolutely hate Melbourne City and uh, you know, there's a few victory supporters out there that uh, have no... Uh, Affection for them for obvious reasons, but um, you know they um, they they certainly could have put in a better performance than that. And and if you're the premiers and you win as convincingly as they did uh, the uh, the premiership race, then you're entitled to step up and perform when uh, when even if you, you know you're uh, you're up against uh, a, a side that um, that's getting a, an unfair advantage uh, that um, that it would have franked their uh, their their greatness in the modern era. And sadly. Um, uh, circumstances and uh, the opposition prevented that from happening. Rado was very uh, Rado was really classy, Rob. I didn't realise that he'd served yeah. for um, Yugoslavia in Kosovo, so he's lived a hell of a life and he's given his adult life to Australian mm. football. And this was an ugly night for him, but he said, "I cannot blame the players. It's a privilege to manage them, and mm. we'll move forward." So he he resisted the urge to you know part company with them or distance himself from the effort. Uh, I thought he was really. Really classy in the postcard. Yeah, no, no, fair comment. He took over Paddy Kisnorbo uh, when they were up and about, and, he, and I don't think there can be any, any of this put on him. All right, mate, what's your game of the week, Will? Mine comes, courtesy of Edge, Israel and Brazil at the Under-20 Boys World Cup in Argentina. No Australia in this tournament, so it has slipped the radar a touch, but certainly not that of, uh, of Michael, who's clearly been tucking into it and then hammering our group chat as he enjoys it. Uh, the semifinals are going to be played this Friday morning, uh, so my game comes from the quarterfinals, which saw Israel defeat the mighty Brazil uh, 3-2 in extra time. And maybe, Derek, Brazil were a little bit confused or duped by Israel's quality because they were wearing what could only be described as traditional Uruguayan blue uh, 
Twice, though, Brazil did take the lead, first in the second half and then in extra time, and twice Israel hit back within two minutes. Ultimately, it was David Dor Terjeman, uh, who was the hero. Very composed finish uh, in the box, led them a merry dance, a couple of cutbacks, and and, uh, and ended up burying it. That sets up a semi-final with Uruguay, so they're going to have to find a, an alternate strip, I'd say, uh, this Friday morning. The other semi is South Korea against Italy. So that's a... Uh, that's an, yeah, good alternative nations deep in a tournament. Yeah, for Israel to make the last four is a huge achievement. Yeah, no, it's massive, um, and uh, uh, the fact that um, that they are a, a, a country that consistently uh, uh, punches above their weight whenever they they compete. Um, if uh, if they can get a you know a, a, a top four finish out of, of this tournament, it suggests that. Uh, you'd think they're going to be uh, a competitive side as, as the coming World Cups um, emerge, particularly the one um, in the States, Canada and Mexico in four years' time. So, yeah, watch this space. So, team of the week. Um, I know this one uh, is, is is a pretty obvious one, but, um, you know, I, I think they've deserved it after um, of the, their performances over the last several years and the fact that they're on track for the treble. Um, I feel um, Manchester City at least deserve to be in this conversation. We know they've secured the league in the FA Cup double and they're just 90 minutes away from what will be their greatest season in their history. Um, the Champions League this uh, Saturday night, European time, Sunday morning hours against Inter Milan. If they do it, they'll become only the second English club to complete the treble of the Premier League, the FA Cup and Champions League. Of course, Manchester United uh, did it 24 years ago. There's obviously plenty of discussion around this club, being specifically the financial fair play investigations. We talked to Simon Hill about that last week. And as a City fan, he's got a, a strong view on that. Uh, uh, but if, uh, if Chelsea have proven one thing this season, you just can't buy a team and put them out on the park and expect uh, great players to perform. And, um, and if there's one person who's chiefly responsible for melding and crafting all uh, all of that talent into into one uh, incredibly successful side. It's Pep Guardiola. So I guess, Derek, when you put it aside, as we need to, um, for the purpose of this conversation, the the, the, the financial discussions around Manchester City, uh, uh, where do you place them in the pantheon of, of, uh, of great teams that uh, you've seen from your own Arsenal Invincibles to Manchester United to the Real Madrid's, Barcelona's, Bayern Munich's, you know, the great clubs of the big competitions um, – through uh, um, throughout um, well, Europe in this case? I think they're very close, if not edging past the Ferguson-Manchester United team. I mean, Ferguson had a few different eras, but that team that started around the late 1990s with the golden generation, the, the class of 92, um, that that team there that won the treble and they won it, um, you know, going toe-to-toe with, you know, a fantastic Arsenal team domestically. Um, who can forget Ryan Giggs wheeling away with his, his shirt off and his chest hair out, uh, having secured the, the FA Cup semi-final, which, of course, they went on to win. Uh, and then, of course, the miraculous circumstances that United won the uh, final in in Barcelona with the last-minute goal from from Solskjaer. So, you know, I think this this City team is is, is more interesting. Sorry, less interesting, sorry. Mm-hmm. They're so clinical. They don't really make mistakes. Uh, I think they've kind of swatted away all challenges, you know, Liverpool really being that, 
that team that kept them honest for the last few seasons before this one. So I'd say it's hard to compare between eras, which is a bit of a cop-out, but I'd say these teams are now pretty much on, you know, a level playing field, the, the iconic Ferguson team and the iconic Pep Guardiola team. They're, they're a fantastic side. Mm, yep, fair call. It, uh, it'll be interesting uh, uh, to see uh, what those investigations um, eventually conclude and what history um, dictates in the fullness of time. But until then, uh, uh, I think um, that assessment is pretty fair. All right, what do you, who have you plucked as your team of the week, mate? I've got Antwerp, Belgian champions for the first time in 66 years. Uh, in the Belgian Pro League, the structure is that they play 34 games to get a top four. And from there, these sides then meet home and away. So they play another six games. Uh, and those points are added on top of what they'd earned in the regular season. Antwerp were playing Genk, uh, former club of Matty Ryan, on the final day and led them by a point heading in. So they needed just a draw to uh, make sure that they could win and they looked to have bottled it uh, at 2-1 down. At stages throughout the day, Genk led. At others, uh, Union saint Gilois, who we learned a little bit about this season, uh, led courtesy of their match with Bruce. So it really was all going on. Uh, only for hometown boy, hometown boy within Antwerp, Toby Alderweireld. Uh, one of the finest the nation has produced uh, to score a bomb in the 94th minute and and seal the title and break the drought. So Derek, he didn't start his career with the club. Uh, even though he is from the town, he was over at the Ajax Academy pretty early, but he has made a huge impact in his first season back. Uh, they're champions for the first time since 1957. Uh, and it should also be noted that they spent 48 years out of the top flight, so they haven't really been a contender at all, uh, only having returned in 2021. So a nice feather in the cap for Toby Alderweireld. Yes, certainly, and uh, quite an interesting way that that season uh, has ended. Uh, and as you described there, with the the playoff type system that that, that decides the champion. So, um, yeah, absolutely, I, I feel um, that that's a great accomplishment for um, an emerging uh, team and an emerging league. But there are some good teams, as we know, in uh, the Belgian league. So, um, you know, well done to to Antwerp and. Um, Sticking in Europe, I've gone for Barcelona, Barcelona Feminine or Femini. Uh, they've, of course, won the uh, the Champions League this week with a 3-2 victory over uh, Wolfsburg at what was a sold-out Philipp Stadion uh, in Eindhoven. Um, they were favourites to, to win this game, but they were 2-0 down. Um, goals from uh, uh, Peor and uh, Alexandra Pop, who we all know, meant that they were 2-0 uh, up by the break, even though Barca had two-thirds of possession. But it was two goals in two second-half minutes from uh, Patricia Aguiaro, who uh, brought Barcelona back into contention. A couple of great crosses there um, for goals. And then this horrible defensive moment for, for Wolfsburg, who uh, uh, the defenders got in a muddle. One kicked it against the other. And uh, Rolfo was there, the former Wolfsburg player, to slam the ball home and Barcelona won there. Um, Lucy Bronze made history as the first Englishwoman to win the Champions League title with two different clubs. Um, and of course, both of these sides beat English opposition, getting to the final. Wolfsburg obviously beat Arsenal and Barca, beat, uh, beat Chelsea 2-1 on aggregate to get there. Uh, the only thing that I would consider was that um, this game was played at exactly the same time as the FA Cup final uh, during the day, which is unusual for a European final. And, you know, I know that UEFA doesn't necessarily need to plan its games around 
the leagues and and competitions of other uh, of other countries, but it, surely it would have been good to have had the FA Cup final on and then have this game on. Imagine if Arsenal and Chelsea got to the final, and then you don't have you've got to choose between the two. People could stay on in the pub and then enjoy this game as well. So I was a bit sort of bemused when I saw when I saw that. But uh, congratulations to uh, Barcelona Feminine and the, the thirty three thousand people in in uh, the Netherlands who watched it saw a fantastic game. Yeah, I did notice that um, that timing conflict. It just seemed bizarre that the um, that the organisations responsible, UEFA and the FA, couldn't uh, couldn't get their act together to, to make that happen. And, and and with respect, even though the uh, FA Cup final um, was moved a few years back um, to a, to an hour later kickoff time, it has been in that slot for a long, long time. And the Champions League uh, final, men's or women's, um, does seem to shift around a, a little bit. So uh, you know, in the year of the Women's World Cup, to have a showcase final like that, you know, if you who, who, you would never have had the the men's Champions League final played head to head against the uh, the FA Cup final. Um, uh, so um, so why is it good enough for the women's? It doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, look, I'm going to go back to um, to my um, my game of the week to find my hot topic as we move into um, to that discussion point. Um, it, it's it's the grand final, Central Coast Mariners uh, again. But this is a point that uh, that I brought up with Gaddy, and uh, I get I know I, uh, I I'm on this bandwagon quite a bit about inclusivity, uh, particularly for for those of uh, of the community that live with disabilities. But to, to give some context to this um, particular uh, discussion, and I'm talking about the, the the trophy lift at the end of the grand final night, which uh, which had uh, you know the partners, the children, the fans, uh, and uh, and and a, and a group of, of disabled supporters who, who were involved taking centre stage. This began back in 2020 as the Mariners were rebuilding their club culture. They they announced a, a partnership with the South Australian-based charity One Culture Football to provide opportunities for participants living with a disability on the Central Coast. So the One Culture Mariners program is an all-inclusive football program for six to 65-year-olds of all abilities and disabilities. The program focuses not only on football, but health, well-being, gross motor skills, inclusion, self-confidence and self-esteem. And those words can sort of just roll off the tongue, but uh, uh, but how critical are they to, to the, the well-being of people, um, healthy or otherwise? Um, most of us have the good fortune not to, to live with disability. So when you see people, elite sports people, sharing their moment in the sun with people who haven't been blessed with that uh, that great good fortune, um, I think as, as far as any hot topics that we have ever covered in Stoppage Time, since we began this format, um, this one for me sits uh, comfortably on the top shelf. So well done to the Central Coast Mariners. Well done to Nick Montgomery and the One Culture Mariners program for everything that you've done. And well done to every single person in that organisation who, uh, who's, who's been behind uh, uh, showcasing uh, the uh, the All Abilities uh, um, group uh, who uh, who formed the One Culture Football. Willem, um, so yeah, that's my topic of the week, my friend. And I know you're going to sort of go back to to uh, to that uh, Roma um, uh, discussion point that we had earlier on about fan culture for your hot topic. Yeah, I'll bring the mood down a touch because it is important, and then Derek will lift us up to close. But yeah, the proliferation of just appalling fan behaviour this week. Uh, a couple of examples: France's second tier a match between Bordeaux and Rodé was abandoned after a fan ran on the field and attacked a player who just scored, Lucas Boades, that left him with a concussion. Top. Flight in France, um, Azaxio in Marseille, an eight-year-old boy with brain cancer, for goodness sakes, and his family, who were guests of Marseille, were harassed in their box by rival fans. At the same match, a journalist was 
in uh, left hospitalised after being attacked by Marseille fans, uh, and then separately at, at, uh, at Wembley, 33 people were arrested at the FA Cup final, including a Manchester man wearing a shirt that made light of Hillsborough. Um, it can be hard to consider, Derek, sort of what to do. You don't want to pass it all off as a coincidence, but at the same time, you can't really umbrella everything under the same uh, bracket. I guess maybe your point on uh, on Jose and, and managerial behaviour to, to a broader point can maybe give a little bit of somewhere to look, um, a, yeah, a bit of somewhere to look to maybe, yeah, think about how we can work through these uh, these issues and maybe stamp out that sort of peanuttery on the touchline and hope that it can have an impact in the stands. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. And when I saw that news of the 9-7 shirt, I just sort of had to hold my head in my hands and, you know, and we're in 2023 and why someone thought that that was a, a good idea, uh, we'll never know. And, of course, I think it was either last week or the week before we were talking about fan behaviour in uh, Netherlands as well and that, that seemed to be disintegrating quite a lot as well. So I don't know... Um, whether fan behaviour is getting worse or whether it's just cyclical. Um, but we're certainly, you know, seeing some pretty horrible stuff. And I, you know, I refer back to the the Barcelona game and the Walter game, you know, women's football played in great spirit, great fans in the stadium, no problems as far as I could hear. You know, that's probably the future at the moment. And as the, as the men's game is kind of racing to the bottom. But as you said, Willem, just uh, finish on what we well, I hope it's a bit of a light. I do end up bringing quite um, deep and meaningful hot topics, but this time it is the end of Ted Lasso that I want to talk about. I know you boys have watched it, and I'll, I'll give you my summary, and maybe you'll tell me if you think I've got it right or not, but I've got mixed emotions about the end of this series. I did watch every single episode. Um, <clears throat> bad stuff included a lot of terrible cliches. Um, you know, fans, <laughs> fans, fans in the pub, like that was very, you know, just uh, people calling each other wankers a lot. The terrible fake crowds and chanting uh, at Sel Selhurst Park. Um, I, don't, I, you know, I know this is for an American audience rather than necessarily, you know, a hardened British football fan. But I was wincing um, several times every episode with that. Didn't like the real life action. I thought that you know, probably not the worst execution I've seen, but I still absolutely cringe when I see. Actors trying to play uh, top-level football. Uh, I, I didn't didn't like that. Um, I just wonder whether it got Je Jesse Marsh fired as well. Ultimately, the uh, the mockery of uh, of uh, Ted Lasso. Um, I wonder whether that was a was a factor. But on the flip on the flip side, my wife loved it. She uh, she saw Pep Guardiola in an episode recently and remarked how hot he was, which uh, was an interesting side of my wife that I'd never seen. Um, it actually addressed some important issues. There was a player that came out as gay, and it was a really quite bit clunky, but it was a bit of a, it was a warm story. There's mental health. I think Ted Lasso has a panic attack at one point, so mm -hmm. it addresses mental health. It addresses racism. It addressed sexism, particularly with the uh, the female owner of the AFC Wimbledon and the abuse that that she got. Um, and it was good that, um, hopefully no spoilers for anyone, but Richmond didn't end up winning the league in the end. Um, that would have been a bit too far for me. Um, but I think overall it was a good thing while it lasted. 
I'm not hanging out for any more episodes, and I'm happy to move on. What do you, what do you think, Rob? Well, I'm, I'm interested. You think that they didn't win the pre- the 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 the, uh, the title was not too far from you, but the fact that Ted Lasso coming over knowing nothing about the game wasn't too far. <laughs> but that's the nature <laughs> of the show itself. But look, I, I thought the women were the stars of this show, and and this is with respect to Brett Goldstein as Roy Kent, who who you know was fantastic in his own right, but Hannah Waddingham. Uh, playing Rebecca and uh, and the great Juno Temple, Keely Jones, uh, uh, I thought um, they were just fantastic characters and, and just a good fun show. I mean, look, life is serious enough as it is, um, and uh, and we all need to laugh. Um, but if we can mix our laughs with something a little bit more reflective, and along with all of those other you know storylines you talked about, there was the you know the breakdown of relationships and marriages and and so on that was also dealt with. Yeah, I think it missed a few beats at different times, but they they were trying to deal with a bunch of different things so uh yeah so it was a good show all around and if you haven't watched it and uh you don't mind having had the final episode spoiled by derek um uh then um then go it's a, late. <laughs> it's a little bit late for that isn't it uh, willem did you want to comment before we bring it home no not particularly i just found the show like eating chocolate cake like it tastes good but the whole thing was just itself the whole time so many cliches constantly that yeah you end up getting sick if you eat his chocolate cake all day so yeah two mm. seasons enough for me don't eat chocolate cake all day. That's the treat. All right. Well done, Willem. Thank you, mate. Thank you, guys. Big week ahead. Uh, both the Ollie Roos and the Young Matildas in action and West Ham in the uh, Conference League final. Uh, chance to win a 43-year trophy trip. Excellent. Derek, thank you. Thanks very much. See you next time. Yeah, and Damo, thank you, mate, for making sure this sounded as good as we could could possibly make it. I'm going to take another week off. Um, I've got my beautiful niece, Lauren, the first of my nieces and nephews getting married uh, this coming weekend in Sydney, over looking the beautiful Sydney Harbour. So I'm going to take the week off. I'm going to listen to you guys as I drive back um, from Sydney. Um, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's been a treat as always. Make sure you subscribe to box to box Stoppage Time and Offside, wherever you get your podcast. Tweet us at box to box nts and follow us on Twitter. Make sure, please, you like us on Facebook and join us throughout the week as our podcast drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.